Thank you for listening. You're listening to Medicine Remix. Music is a human universal. No known culture now or ever has lacked it. By as early as 20 weeks, the fetus has a functioning auditory system. Mothers in every culture sing to their infants, making music one of the newborn's first experiences. By age five, most children have internalized rules about what chord progressions are legal or typical of their culture's music. We experience music during a wide variety of human activities, from birthdays to religious ceremonies, political gatherings, sporting events, and it's experienced in many different forms, from a cappella to instrumental or even tribal chants. I mean, nothing sets the mood like the music you play with your windows down on your drive home from work. Even if you're just at a basketball game and we assume Lance Stevenson isn't blowing in your ear, you're constantly hearing some hype chant or background music throughout the game. Music recruits neural systems of reward and emotion, similar to those known to respond specifically to biologically relevant stimuli, such as food and sex, and those that are artificially activated by drugs of abuse, especially cocaine. This is pretty incredible to me because music isn't strictly necessary for biological survival or reproduction nor is it a pharmacological substance. Activation of our reward system in response to a stimulus as abstract as music may tell us more about the complexity of human cognition. The first time I heard about this stuff, I definitely geeked out because I felt like both my worlds were coming together. Music and medicine were having an affair I was just now learning about. There's something about the translation of music, these pressure waves traveling through air to the eventual physiological changes in our brain that piqued my interest. It's also interesting that we like music that is familiar, but not too familiar. We don't like it to be played out. We like hearing what we crave, but we love it when we are challenged by the addition or subtraction of a familiar element. We crave that perfect balance of order and chaos. Pleasurable music balances predictability with surprise, complexity with simplicity, mace with some hard-ass drums. Although both the blends you just heard were over the same progression, played by the same synth, all the elements around it changed up and hopefully it produced a pleasurable balance of novelty with familiarity. So where in our brain does music live? Well, like a terrible roommate, music claims almost every corner. Listening to music recruits not only the auditory areas of the brain, but also employs large-scale neural networks. Scientists have discovered that the processing of rhythm recruits motor areas in the brain, such as a peach-sized structure at the base of the brain called the cerebellum, which controls balance and muscle coordination. This supports the idea that music and movement are closely intertwined. Limbic areas of the brain, known to be associated with emotions, were also found to be involved, specifically in the processing of rhythm and tone. 
Music involves both hemispheres of the brain. In fact, researchers found that the corpus callosum, the fissure that connects the two halves of the brain, is enlarged in musicians. In the motor areas in the brains of musicians that play an instrument or sing, we see an increase in gray matter, which is where the cell bodies of neurons live. This accounts for the increased fine muscle control that they need to play the instrument or sing their song. Now that we're done with that quick neuroanatomy lesson on the processing of music, I want to get back to talking about why it makes you feel so great. Why you crave that Van Halen guitar solo or that Dr. Dre bassline. When exposed to a rewarding stimulus like music, the brain responds by increasing release of the neurotransmitter dopamine. Structures that are considered part of the reward system are found along the major dopamine pathways in our brain. The pathway most often associated with reward is called the mesolimbic pathway, which starts in an area of the brain called the ventral tegmental area, or VTA. When someone uses an addictive drug or experiences something rewarding like music, dopamine neurons in the VTA are activated. These neurons project to another area in the brain via the mesolimbic pathway called the nucleus accumbens, which is associated with motivation and reward. When the VTA is activated, you also see dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens. Researchers found that dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens lined up with the peaks of emotional arousal during music listening, when you hear that bass drop or a familiar melody. We also know that the nucleus accumbens is rich in opioid receptors. Projections from the nucleus accumbens are also mostly opioid and are thought to be specifically responsible for reward-related behavior. Just last year, there was some new research that demonstrated that blocking opioid receptors with a drug like naloxone decreased the highly pleasurable experience, or chills, that the research participants said they usually experience listening to their favorite song. This is evidence that musical pleasure is mediated by the brain's endogenous opioid system. So why do we always hear dopamine mentioned as the feel-good hormone? Because dopamine is released with the use of an addictive drug, researchers initially thought that dopamine must be the neurotransmitter that causes pleasure. And so nowadays, in pop culture especially, we hear dopamine equated with pleasure. Even with that opioid research I mentioned aside, Recent studies suggest that the timing of dopamine activity doesn't correlate exactly with the experience of pleasure. For example, there's a subset of dopaminergic neurons that are activated before a reward is actually received, and thus before the pleasure is experienced. Scientists mapped out the time course of dopamine release by using functional MRI to view brain activity as research participants listen to their favorite music. And they found that a different area of the brain, called the caudate, receives dopamine input during the anticipation of peak emotional response to music. This tells us that there are two distinct areas that are responsible for the anticipation and experience of emotional response to music. So it's not just when you hear the guitar solo, but the reward pathway also plays a role during your anticipation of a given piece of music. Emotion often plays a central role in the creation and performance of music. Our emotional state is governed partly by a tiny brain structure known as the amygdala, which is responsible for the processing of positive emotions, such as happiness, and negative ones, such as fear and anxiety. The amygdala and hippocampus, which is involved in memory formation, 
both receive inhibitory input from neurons in the nucleus accumbens, suggesting a possible mechanism for decreased activity in these regions as a consequence of activity happening in the nucleus accumbens. So activation of the reward system by music may maximize pleasure not only by activating the reward system, but by also simultaneously decreasing the activity in brain structures associated with negative emotions. So music not only makes you feel good, it also helps you feel less bad. We finally have a reason why Drake sounds so damn good on your late night drives. The ability of music to induce all these great changes in our neurocircuits and tap into our reward system suggests that although music may not be imperative for survival, it may indeed be of a significant benefit to our mental and physical well-being. The ancient circuitry that is our brain has evolved to reinforce basic biological behaviors that have high adaptive value. However, the rewarding qualities of music listening are not obviously directly adaptive. Musical stimuli, similar to other forms of art, are perceived as being rewarding by the listener, rather than exerting a direct biological influence. Also, that perception of music that results in a rewarding response is relatively specific to the listener, as there is a large variability in musical preferences amongst individuals. Now, I know your date last night said she likes pretty much everything except country, but I'd be willing to bet there's probably a set of artists and songs that she enjoys more than others. It's really interesting to me that our own musical preferences are a factor in whether or not these neurochemical dominoes get knocked down. All right, well, I think it's time to wrap it up. A huge shout out to the scientists and musicians out there dedicated to studying this unique intersection of music and medicine and attempting to assign meaning behind these phenomena. If you want to learn more about this stuff, definitely check out This Is Your Brain on Music by Dan Levitin, who's a musician turned neuroscientist. It's an awesome dive into this world and really any of his work will probably get you hooked. If you prefer audio, check out Cadence Podcast. Their episodes explore the relationship between music and the mind. There's a lot more to learn about this art and what it does to us. It's literally bigger than hip hop. I'm KT, and you're in the mix with Medicine Remixed. This is probably one of the hardest things to do, and that's ask for help. We need your help! On any front. Asking for help medically. I don't need therapy. Asking for help life-wise. Need help! Need help now! Asking for help supporting Medicine Remix. I guess it's all uncomfortable. Uh. No easy way to do it. Until now. The folks over at Anchor have decided to unveil something that we think is pretty dope. Ladies and gentlemen. It's called listener support. And the way it works is you go to anchor.fm slash medicine remixed and it'll take you to our page. There's a support button. Click on it. Follow what it says. And bam, you have now donated the vital blood to this organism that it needs to keep on pumping. Thanks for listening. Medicine Remix.